Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Troy Goodfellow joins me this evening. Welcome back, Troy. I love coming back to my show. Tonight, we also <laughs> welcome to the show first-time guest with game, from Gamers with Jobs, Eric Hansen. Eric, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Tuesday and Wednesday mark the 150th anniversary of the attack on Sport Sumter and the beginning of the American Civil War. Tonight on Three Moves Ahead, we'll be talking about the games of the Civil War, what they say about the conflict, and what they overlook. Uh, so I thought I'd start us off just, you know, by asking you guys, you know, what are your what are your standout strategic level Civil War games? Standout strategic level war games. Wow, that's a short list. It is. So considering the whole, what what what's been memorable? The strategic level games. I mean, really, the Ajod's Civil War is probably the best one of recent years. It really stands out, but that's because it's the Ajod model. Uh, it has, you know, month-long turns, you raise your armies, it's really about moving the armies, getting the command structure, which Age of Civil War had brilliantly, where you had generals and generals under the generals and generals under them, and really success depended on how coordinated your armies were, more than you have to have the right general in the right place at the right time, but not separated, not just running around with 25,000 men uh, in the Mississippi. Um so it had this larger military structure that captured, I think, you know, mid-19th century uh, industrial warfare in a very, very good way. Now, um, the whole it didn't, the industry side was kind of tacked on and the economics weren't all that good. But, I mean, that's kind of the thing with the American Civil War. It is it, two countries competing against each other, and all you really need to do to reflect the industrial might of the North is say, well, they get this huge manpower bonus. And there you go. That's really all you have to do because it's just two sides fighting it out. So right. I, th- I would say Ajod Civil War is probably the best uh, strategic level war game of the Civil War that I can think of. A computer. Eric? Well, um, if, we're, if we're sticking inside video games, I'm, I have a harder time because they're, uh, I guess I have less experience in that area. But there's also... I think fewer options. Um, I was definitely I was raised on Eric Lee Smith's The Civil War, the, the board game, the tabletop, um, as one of the, the big things that I did with my dad growing up. So everything is compared against that in my mind. Um, so how does how does a strategic level Civil War board game work? How how, how did that one sort of handle the conflict? Very very slowly, um, <laughs> um, but that's you know the, the standard of the massive takes up the whole kitchen table. Right? Was it one of those leave it up for months on end type of games? Yeah, yeah. We, oh, we set up a, a table in the basement, put some glass over the map itself so that it wouldn't get bumped around, and we just put shits on top of the glass. Um, and yeah, it was there for months at a time. Also wonderful because you you can't get better AI than you know a good Civil War history buff is going to give you. Right now, you know when when you're talking when you're talking about like that sort of investment, like I mean, how how did you know? I mean, the scale. I mean, if the game's accurate, right, the scale should be kind of tilted against the South, right? Like maybe the longer this the game goes on, the South should the harder it should be for the South to hang on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, how how did how did that game? You know, players playing for such a long time. How did it prevent it from turning into a death by a thousand cuts for the uh, Confederate player? Um, it gives a lot of importance to the quality of generals, um, and that I mean, that is something the South definitely had going for it. And I think it also uh, had asymmetrical victory conditions. Okay, so you, South you almost, had you almost have to. But it wasn't you know just who has more points at the end of four or five years. Right. So do you do you remember exactly what the South's victory conditions were? Because we're all familiar with, like, I mean, there's there's certain things that a lot of Civil War games have, have sort of used as cutoffs, right? The 1864 elections mm-hmm. is a big one. Right. Um, and then there's the, um, you know, another thing you see that happen a lot in these games is uh, Europe somehow enters the war yeah. on behalf of the Confederacy. England, France, they, they want the raw materials, so they finally, they finally step in. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't know. I've, I've always had kind of, I've had a bit of a problem with both those victory conditions. I mean, just from you know, from the perspective of are, are those realistic cutoffs? The elections are perhaps a realistic cutoff. Europe seems like a very long shot. I think it's that's one of those things that I think that varies depending on which history you're reading. Um, and if you're reading a more sympathetic or a more more of a history that would would give the the South a shot at winning the war, 
um, it needs to include things like the European powers becoming involved in some way or something like that, because otherwise the the numbers just aren't on their side. Right. Which is actually when when I was thinking about computer games that I've enjoyed about the American Civil War, uh, Vicky Two actually came to mind because I mean, that was on one my mind as things, well. It's one of those things where it's it's a great, wonderfully de- in-depth model um, in a lot of well, not necessarily directly military ways, but it right. also um, any country basically on the on the planet could become involved and tip the scales. Uh, I think last time I played Russia was a very big factor in that. <laughs> so <laughs> they you just know, came across the Pacific. So that's you know, Victoria Two is a game I, I wanted to bring up because I think what's interesting about that. I mean, it's it's not specifically a Civil War game, but the Civil War definitely looms very large in it, um, particularly mm-hmm. if you're playing the, you know, an American faction. Um, you know, one of the things I, I really enjoy about Victoria 2, and it, this makes it unique among um, games that deal with the Civil War, is for, for Victoria 2, the Civil War begins in, like, 1850. You know, it, mm-hmm. it might not be a shooting war yet, but, I mean, it, it, really, it really contextualizes the war in this, in this steady ratcheting up of tensions, of division, um, and, and it really gets at this you know if you're playing if you're playing the united states as, as the civil war approaches it's like you're putting out different fires every turn and yeah. you just keep pushing the problems back yeah i mean that's one of my problems with victoria 2 and the way they model it is i mean you could argue that the war is inevitable right? there's going to be a confrontation uh over slavery in the united states i mean clearly something's going to happen uh but it always happens at the same time in Victoria too. I mean, once eighteen fifty happens, there's going to be a civil war. I mean, it just it happens ten years early. It's it's like it's clockwork. As soon as it can happen, it will happen. Um, but the way it uses the decisions and um, the governmental decisions in Victoria too to keep putting it off, putting it off, and putting it off, you know, it puts a lot of control in the hands of the player. To, you know, when maybe I want to have it right now, maybe I don't want to have. Uh, Pass, you know, free Kansas or the Fugitive Slave Act, right. um, where you want to provoke the war so you can get the damn thing over with before all of these uh, manpower bonuses started accruing, or you, before Mexico decides to kick your ass in a war. Well, and you can definitely sort of preemptively mobilize. Yes, well, right, you have to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, oh well, the, the south the south is seceding. Oh dear, they have five army corps right on their doorstep. Well, I mean, do do you ever build Dixie troops before the Civil War? I do. Um, you know, I mean, the, the American game I had it it kind of followed. Um, I mean, it it was an early game of Vicky, so I you know it was right. these games are in many ways at their best when you kind of don't know what the hell you're doing and you're feeling your way around, right? Because uh, you haven't found the exploits, you haven't found the loopholes, right? Uh, but but the way it, it, it tended to work for me is, you know, I was just trying to run kind of a westward expansion, um, you know, manifest destiny, all that crap, and uh, you know, Mex- I, I ended up, you know, dragged sucked into war with Mexico, and I needed troops, I needed troops fast, and so you know, just the way it shook out, I mobilized, I I, I mobilized really heavily in the south, and. Uh, the majority of my forces were Southerners. Yeah, see, I never did that. I never built factories in the South either. Uh, I mean, I wanted to cripple them as much as I damn could. Because <laughs> I knew there was going to be a Civil War coming. This is one of the things with these grand, with the game where it's a grand historical game where the Civil War is just an event in Victoria too. I mean, there's just going to be a Civil War. It's not a Civil War game. It's not a game about the Civil War. The Civil War is going to happen. But just like, you know, Europa Universalis 2, if you knew the time of troubles was coming for the Russians, you could prepare yourself for it. Yes. Um, and you could build, you could strategize around it because you know the future. So, I mean, in that way, you know, it's, though you're right, it does a great job of showing, you know, the, the pre-war tensions and showing how slavery and the debates over slavery um, kind of forced this division or exacerbated the division between North and South. The fact that you know it's going to come, and it's going to come as soon as it is allowed to happen by the game clock. It, I mean, I haven't played with Victoria 2 in a while, and I'm not sure if they fixed that, but it was always so damn predictable when it would happen. that you can always plan around it. Um, if you know it's going to come on a certain day, you know, you put your armies in place in the border states. I'm ready to march from Maryland down to Richmond. You know, I 
don't even need that many boats. Who needs the Anaconda strategy when you have all these troops ready to march? So, Right. Oh, and the game I was thinking of was uh, not Koei, but it's a like a Koei game. It is No Greater Glory from SSI. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which was a uh, grand strategy game, also a strategy game with the Civil War, where you had to manage your cabinet. And you had cabinet tensions, in both the North and the South. So you had to keep certain people happy. Um, you also had, you know, same victory conditions for the North. They have to defeat the South. The South has to, you know, force... Lincoln to lose an election or get European intervention, or they can win militarily, though that's very hard. Um, it was, you know, really, uh, there were also domestic policies you had to deal with. You know, when do you emancipate if you're the North? When does Lincoln right. pass the Emancipation Proclamation? You can't do it too soon because then, you know, Maryland flips out. Hmm. Uh, you can't do it too late, or you lose, you know, the momentum you get. Uh, this is a fight for freedom, um, because, you know, for the South, it was always about slavery. For Lincoln, it really wasn't until mid-war. Um, so you have this... You know, so that's the game I was thinking of. I've It reminded me of a Koei game for some reason. Yeah, just as a side note, have you guys been uh, following at all that uh, Disunion blog on the New York Times? Yes, it's excellent. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Eric, have you uh, gotten in on that? I haven't, but now I want to. Oh man, no! You t- <laughs> uh, like I, I so badly want them to publish this as a book, because what what they're doing is they're basically like reporting on uh, the Civil War events as if they were happening, right? So it's 150 years ago. So basically, I don't know when they started doing it, but it was well before the war. Um, so they've been they've been covering how you know all all these stories that are developing across the country in 1860, 1859. Um, you know, to you know, to sort of lay the groundwork for the, this war that's about to break out, and I think they're going to do this throughout the throughout the war. And it's an interesting mix of like, you know, pretend reporting, but it's also very scholarly work. So they're really sort of getting inside people's heads and using primary sources. Uh, it's fascinating. But but you know, the reason I bring it up is one of, one of the arguments that um that that they made on on the Disunion blog as they're sort of tracking Lincoln's statements to um, abolitionist supporters, um, to unionists, they tracked that, I mean, you know, Lincoln was really inconsistent about his motivations for, you know, for, like, for, for, he was really inconsistent about what he planned to do about slavery, what he planned to do about the South if it seceded. Um, and he, you know, in the disunion blog, he he's emerging almost as like this protean figure, right? Where, you know, he is what he needs to be. Um, and and the argument they seem to be making is that he he was he was much more, he was much more of an abolitionist than than perhaps he admitted. That whole if I could save the union, you know, by freeing none of the slaves, you know, I would do it. If I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. Um, that that's in many ways window window dressing for uh, racist northerners who who really don't want to be thinking of themselves as going to war over. Blacks, right? But for for Lincoln, you know, uh, the argument for the their, the argument they're making is for Lincoln, it was always very much a background issue. It was always a priority, and it was kind of they they sort of paint a picture of him as just waiting for the earliest possible moment when he can finally say war's about slavery now. Yeah, which is I mean, what this union did a great job with was demonstrating, you know, because you always hear, you know, the myth of the lost cause, which carries on that oh the South wasn't fighting for slavery, and the disunion blogs doing a great job demonstrating, you know, you look at the secession statements and why they're leaving, it's really all about slavery. I mean, there's, they're not hiding it in South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi why they want to leave the Union. It's because they want to keep their slaves. Um, and I think it's done a very good job going back to the primary documents and scholarly research, you know, saying, look, you can't pretend that this was not, that the South was seceding for any other reason. Um, I don't want to get into too much of the history of politics about this, but I mean, I think that's really been, you know, some of the New York Times' best historical work in a very long time, and I do hope to keep it up through the war. Yeah, it, it's been it's been really exciting, and it, it is in itself a very good reason for uh, going going getting behind the uh, New York Times paywall, because uh, that is that is one of the more enjoyable blogs, one of the more interesting concepts um, I've seen lately. But back to the games, right? You know, I, I, I wanted to get in, uh, into the uh, Aegod game a bit more uh, because it's you know I've I played a bunch of I've played a bunch of the Aegod games. I have never actually played uh, the Blue and the Gray, 
so how does it how does it differ from other age out games like what what is Ajot's perspective on like what makes the Civil War unique? What makes the Civil War game unique or the Civil War unique? What makes the Civil War unique? You know, we've seen the system adapted to so many different conflicts. Right. Um, so, so what what sort of special spin do they put on it for the Civil War? Because it's a more sustained conflict than the ones that they've covered. I mean, you look at the compared to the Napoleonic game or even the Seven Years' War. I mean, this was total war. This was nineteenth-century total war. So they have to capture that. And I think they do that with their attempts to work in economics and their attempts to work in manpower ratios, um, not necessarily well. Uh, but the fact you do have to pay attention to where your troops are coming from, um, where you can recruit from, where you can't, where you can, where you're drafting, where you're not drafting. Um, the fact that this is a total war, and because that's the way it is. Ajod has to adapt their system to that. It doesn't work necessarily all that well because their war game is so simple that you don't always necessarily see the impact of it all the way down. These monthly right. turns, you don't really see the effects of the total war because you're fighting all these large battles and just a bunch of numbers. Um, so sometimes it gets lost in uh, the trajectory. But I think that's what makes a Civil War special. That's what makes it unique. I got a form spring question. Uh, last week, asking, you know, why are Americans so interested in the Civil War? Why is the Civil War such a big thing? So I gave this long answer. One thing I didn't say uh, that I should have is that it is the, f- you could argue, the first total war. First modern industrialized total war. I mean, you, you can go back to the Thirty Years' War, but you don't have entire national economies of the, I mean, the South was fighting for its survival. Everything went into the war effort. There was nothing else. Uh, there was no real domestic economy in the South. Uh, the North had a little bit easier, but, you know, tire factories and industries built up overnight uh, to make sure there were the ammunition, make sure there was the ammunition and the transportation and the entire railroads built to make sure the war effort worked. So I think that's one thing that makes the Civil War unique. And I think Ajod attempted to graft that on to, uh, which was, I think, their Birth of America, I think it was right after Birth of America, right after, right after that. Um, or shortly after that, that they put this system on. And it reminds me of Birth of America in quite a, a number of ways. Um, I don't think it worked really well, uh, all of it. I think it's, it's a great game. I don't think that part worked necessarily well, the economic bits. Um, I think Grigsby's game did those a little bit better, though I think I prefer Ajod's design. Um, but I'm kind of glad they went back to, you know, Napoleon and Seven Years' War, then now we're going to see some of, some of that economic stuff in Pride of Nations. So, Right. Now, can we, can we touch on the Grigsby game a bit? Because, I mean, that was another game I wanted to ask you about, Troy. Oh, it's been so long since I've played it. I really don't want to speak too much on it. I, I liked it a lot when I played it. Uh, I've, I find some of my memories of it collide with uh, uh, Ajod Civil War, uh, Blue and Gray. So, but it, it is more complicated. Uh, it is a Gre- it is a Grigsby game. It is an unavoidably a Grigsby game. So the military side is a lot more detailed, uh, a little bit more fussy. Um, the turns, it's not month-long turns where you see these grand sweeping movements and then you move on to the next turn. So you have... And the economic stuff is a lot more detailed. It's... It, it's a bit of a beast. It's it's not very it's not elegant. It's detailed, but it's not elegant. But I remember liking it very much at the time, and I believe I recognized it at the end of the year as a very good game. But let's get Eric talking. <laughs> You're the expert on some of well, these a little bit more than I am. But... Well, I I wanted to uh, go out, go off a question. Uh, yeah, your form spring question, Troy. Uh, I mean, let, let's let's get into that bit. Why are Americans so damn fascinated with this war? Eric, why don't you uh, lead us off? I'll I'll start off with the easy one because it's ours. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was it was the war that was a big part of of what uh, um, defines America since then. Um, it it's something that we can point back to uh, as taking sides in a number of conflicts that, uh, at least geographically, the sides remain in play at this point in time to even today um they might not be saying the same things but you you still expect different things out of um 
well, the parts of Indiana that declare themselves part of the South, too, right. but also Mississippi and Alabama, um, you expect to, you expect to run into different people with different points of view than you do in uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota. That might not always be true. I mean, there's there's certainly politically speaking well, the I, same I, kind of stuff. I, I think the I, I think definitely the uh, the lost cause mythology that mm-hmm. sprouted up in the Civil War's wake. I think that really sort of kept the war's topicality alive because I think lost cause the lost cause became a shorthand for so many other things yeah. that dogged us over the last century. And continue to do so this day. Yeah, I remember my, my fifth grade uh, Civil War uh, biography. Uh, I don't know what the teachers were thinking. They gave me Nathan Bedford Forrest as the the person I needed to write a bi- bibliography or a biography on. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is you know the days before the internet, where you know you might find one or two books that were willing to actually talk about Nathan Bedford Forrest um, in a straightforward way. Um, and now, of course, with the internet, you you throw up a Google search and you find more than you ever wanted to read um, on, on both sides, a very contentious figure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the Ku Klux Klan was very much still active for quite some time after the Civil War. <laughs> right. So yeah, did, did either of you guys play uh, Mosby's Confederacy? I think that was the Tilted yeah. Mill game. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember when when Tom covered it on Fidget, he, he made the obs- interesting observation that really, I mean, it you know, it, it's kind of it's clearly a Nathan Bedford Forrest game in a lot of way. Mm. It's just you can't make a game about Nathan, Nathan Bedford Forrest, so yeah. they make it about a lesser-known guerrilla warfighter. Uh, but you a know, more gentlemanly guerrilla warfighter, right? Not a, yeah, a, a non-war criminal. Right. Um, <laughs> not that some people would uh, would wouldn't argue that he was wasn't gentlemanly. Right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that I think that I think I think Forrest's reputation is probably beyond. I, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really. Um, I'm not totally up to speed on on lost cause historiography right now. So it's possible <laughs> well, somebody out there is trying to redeem him. But I think he. Well, might yeah, be... in, in Mississippi, they were trying to get a license plate for him. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's got honorary yeah, license plate, but, but, but it it didn't pass. They said. <laughs> Yeah. He's got you know state parks and mines and stuff. Um, the the biggest claim I've, I've heard recently is that he quit the KKK when it started turning ugly. Yeah. If, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that you know he, he had a line that he just wouldn't cross. Yeah, with Mr. The, but, Fort Pillow himself. But, but the, 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 the Fort Pillow massacre that was okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's where it kind of <laughs> hold on, boys. I think we've gone too far. Um, <laughs> you know that's not only part of it. The the, the Civil War. Unlike unlike a lot of uh, unlike a lot of historical conflicts that you know, um, Amer- the United States has been involved in, the, the Civil War remains more explicitly relevant in a lot of ways uh, than, than others. Uh, uh, Troy, so so how did you answer your uh, form spring question? Okay, the question was, what do you think makes the American Civil War so fascinating to so many people, even beyond Americans? Here's my answer. I think it sells beyond America because Americans have done such a great job mythologizing it especially in the South, where it has long been seen as the story of a noble people fighting for a lost cause. But as an historical event, it has a lot going for it dramatically. First, you have the narrative of freedom, with the war ultimately coming down to deciding whether the promises of the revolution would be extended to everyone. Second, you have the brother-versus-brother thing of a civil war. Families were divided. Classmates from military academies and colleagues from previous conflicts fought against each other. This wasn't an ethnic civil war the way we usually understand them but one that you could be seen as for the soul of a nation. The timing of the war helped, coming along as the mass publication of books became commonplace. You had a raft of memoirs and military histories immediately afterwards. Few wars to that point had been as well documented, so it takes on a special meaning. And though every American thinks its generations of leaders are better than everyone else's, think of the power of the Founding Fathers, the Civil War has Lee, Grant, and Sherman. Three men I would put up against any 19th century, century general after Napoleon. Finally, and this is for games, you have the contrasts evident throughout the war. Industrial versus agrarian, Napoleonic tactics facing modern rifling, brotherly love versus war crimes, union versus disunion. And I think that last paragraph really captures why it's a great game setting. Yeah. Because you do have kind of a rock-paper shotgun, rock-paper scissors. Uh, <laughs> No, I do that all the time. I know. Rock, paper, scissors thing going on where you have, can you use very, you have very different sides facing each other? 
They're using the same weapons after a fashion, but they are give all these different social and political and military opposites running into each other. I mean, you could see it as, you know, it's almost Athens versus Sparta. You have a nation that is rich but naval, has a strong naval power, versus a smaller land power with great soldiers and great leadership. It's the traditional um, archetype of warfare in some ways. Uh, it is That is why the Civil War stands out as a gaming setting, I think. Because it has the contrasts are so stark, and gamers love that. Um, you can you see that in Napoleonic. It was even Napoleon the genius versus everybody else. There's your right. stark contrast in Napoleonic games. World War II, you have evil versus good. Um, the Civil War is full of contrasts like that uh, because it, of when it comes along. It comes along at you know the the last great wars were Napoleon's. And he didn't have to face, you know, this mass industrial revolution happening. So, you know, the weapons haven't caught, the tactics haven't caught up to the weapons. And you have two very different sides. It's these contrasts that make the American Civil War such a great setting for a strategy game. Also, it has two sides, which makes it very easy to do in design. At At the strategic level. At the tactical level, it's always two sides. But at the strategic level, having two sides... Um, as long as you can get the victory conditions right, that kind of makes it, you know, kind of special as far as the setting. You know, in many ways, the United States is a very fortunate country. I mean, there, there, there have never been battles like that fought across the United States since then. And American Civil War battle, battlefields, many of them at least, are, are preserved in a way that a lot of European, a lot of European war, bat, war sites uh, simply can't be. You know, too many too many wars have been fought over the same terrain. Um, so many of them are, you know, European, ca- you know, European capitals. Like, you know, who's going to? How how can you re- revisit the battle, battle of Leipzig? You know, how can you walk the terrain of uh, terrain of Leipzig? You you really can't. But but I think for so many Americans, I mean, it, it's kind of drilled into you. Uh, particularly, you know, if you live in certain regions, there's always that field trip, right? The the field trip to the nearest battlefield. And for for a large portion of America. You know there is a if there's a civil war site not too far away, um, and if there's if there's not an actual battlefield, then there's probably a monument somewhere. Um, I mean, if you if you come through the Northeast, it's very much like you know the the cenotaphs you saw you see in the wake of uh, you know World War One. You know, to a degree that you know the Civil War has has left this indelible impression um, on this country that you know a lot of other wars uh, have simply not been able to leave. Though to be fair, I mean, if you're comparing to Europe, Europe has ten times as many years to to fit those wars into as America does. I mean, a war that happened in 1500, um, we don't we don't we don't even have the the mindset that could comprehend that, let alone uh, the extra growth that would have overgrown that you know the Gettysburg or whatever the battlefield site is. And we also do. You know, Added to that, we also have those extra room lying around that we can just fence off and say, you know, something important happened here. I mean, the funny thing about I mean, it's that Gettysburg was made a cemetery like in the war. Mm-hmm. It was set aside. It wasn't like they went back and decided, well, maybe we should mark this spot off and save it. Like you have a lot of monuments coming, you know, decades later. I mean, they just at the time they realized this was something. This was something kind of special. Do you, do you think a part of that, and, and this goes to the the appeal factor, but do you think a part of that goes to um, sort of the way the way people speak and write in this here? I, I I read somewhere that the the soldiers who went to war in the American Civil War were like it, these were the most literate armies um, you can you can possibly imagine, like you know incredibly you know well read, well spoken officers and even enlisted men. It it is you do have. Like I mentioned, you do have this great literature and this great poetry and this great diaries um, and this great, you know, sense of the power of the war. And you know, something I've talked about before to take this over to the games is that strategy and war games really don't capture any of that. They never capture, you know, the emotional power of a war or even the emotional meaning of a war. I mean, you win it. Well, who? I won it. Um but it's not like, wow, that was a hard fight. This is really going to change how my country develops. This is going to change how my population reacts to me. 
um, how do I settle this war? Because after the Civil War, you have, you know, 20 years of Reconstruction, trying to integrate African-Americans into political culture of the South, and then, you know, the North just gives up on that, says, screw it, this is just too hard. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, I, you know, I sometimes... Games just can't capture that, uh, well, which that's is a trick. shame. That's the trick when you go from a, a grand campaign level uh, Civil War game to to something smaller, is that the grand campaign can run into things like um, what Abraham Lincoln was sort of dealing with on a, a broader scale uh, going into the Gettysburg Address and uh, how he was very much worried that he wasn't going to get reelected and how he thought, you know, the, the address was going to be a flop and that sort of thing. When, when you're just dealing with, you know, day two of Gettysburg, that's not, that's not even in the picture anymore. Right. Right. No, but for, for me, I don't know. And, you know, perhaps it's because when I, when I play these games, I've got so many, I mean, first of all, I mean, anyone, if you ever play a, if you ever play a Gettysburg game, I mean, you know, I mean, how can you not have random scenes from Gettysburg sort of playing in your head as, as you're, <laughs> As, I play as the soundtrack usually. Oh god, you're a sick <laughs> bastard. Um, but I mean, for me, as as the battles get closer to to the ground, as as you know, we as we approach the tactical level, you know, I don't know if it's anything inherent about the games, but I I do find that at least on the tactical level, it, I find for me the war begins to recover some of its power. I think I think part of it is. There's always something weird about seeing these, you know, well-known battlefields sort of recreated, right? And just like, you know, when you're defending the northern roads into Gettysburg with, um, you know, I think it's Howard's 11th Corps, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Dutchman. Um, you know, a Green Corps, not a, not a real strong unit in the Union Army, and, you know, the way, they're plo- the, the way they're deployed on the first day of Gettysburg, they're kind of in the air. Um, and they're about to get, you know, hammered from two or three sides. And I don't know, something about, like, you know, being in command of, of that sort of situation where, you know, you start and you've got you've got a core under your command. Like, you've got a pretty large number of troops. Your positions seem sound. And then just to see that decimated over the course of a battle. And, you know, one thing a lot of these games... A lot, one thing a lot of these games get kind of right is the absolutely mind-boggling casualties... That a unit yeah. can suffer if yeah. it gets if it sticks in the fight too long, you know where you know a lot of times I mean the smartest thing you could do as a soldier if you wanted to live was was maybe break the line and run like hell mm-hmm. uh, because those units that developed a reputation for really holding the line for really sticking it out um, a lot of those units just come to absolutely ghastly ends. Yeah, well that's one of the things that's always attracted me uh, to the more uh, battle level games is because. Uh, as as an Illinoisan with uh, Wisconsin roots, uh, we're Iron all Brigade. about cheering for the home team, the Iron yeah. Brigade, right? And just watching them die, but <laughs> but they hold, and it's it's always an, an important part of every battle we see them in. Is that I want to play, you know, that fight. I want to watch my guys, my team win, and I think that's part of what makes uh, the American Civil War appealing to to an American, especially audience, is being able to root for your home team, your local boys. Well, yeah, I mean that's I mean so many of these characters and they have sort of passed into national collective legend. Um, you know, some of the figures like you know Robert E. Lee basically became you know national heroes, patron saints in parts of the country. Uh, but I mean, you know, even for even for a moderate buff like me, I mean, certain people just sort of you know stand out. You know, certain units like the Iron Brigade. Um, you know, one scenario I remember really vividly from um, Take Command, Second Manassas. Is um, it's it's a really effective bit of of in mission storytelling, right? right. Uh, it's it's the uh, do you remember this, Troy? It's the mission where you were commanding Cutler's Brigade. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're you're commanding Cutler's Brigade on you know on a, a standard route march, and it's sort of you you end up sort of unwittingly kicking off the Battle of Second Manassas. You're walking along the road, you get hit by some Confederate skirmishers off to the left. You deploy to engage, and suddenly you're engaged with. You know, a division of Jackson's army. You know, I mean, your your entire unit's scattered to hell, and you just have to hold the center of this road over a really wide front, and hopefully the whole thing doesn't go to hell on you. Uh, but I, you know, I remember playing that scenario, and you know, it's a great unit. You, if you deploy them right, they will hold. 
but they're going to take some mind-boggling casualties. And I remember, you know, just how watching this unit, you know, in this in this game, you know, it goes from a pretty strong brigade, just it gets cut to hell during this battle. And I remember reading later, um, you know, about the actual engagement, how you know after the battle was over, um, this was apparently really rare on a Civil War battlefield. But the the fight was so hard, and the units involved that were so good that where the Confederate and Union lines had been firing from, basically the soldiers were dead in formation. You know, in the wake of the, in the aftermath of this firefight, you basically had you know regiments worth of troops lying there dead on the field, you know, as if they were as if they were still fighting. It's this really eerie scene, and the game might not communicate that, but it does communicate the sort of heroism and unbelievable you know courage it would have taken to stand there in these unbelievably deadly fights yeah and that's one of the things um when when we were talking back about uh vicky two strategies for for playing america i mean you can do all sorts of things to prepare ahead of time given the the, his, the historical hindsight that we have um and, and that's one of the things that i always find lacking a, a lot of times about most uh battle level games is that you you know exactly what's happening at the beginning of Gettysburg. You know exactly what to expect. You know what day two and day three are going to look like, or at least day right. two. Um, and so you can you can radically change how the Confederates approach town uh, in a way that you know won't get their their, their troops on all sorts of uh, an array and scattered around. Um, and and you can you can plan ahead of time for an orderly withdrawal um, across town as the Union um, in ways that were. You know, half contemplated by the smarter guys in the field and the cooler minds of the time, but only because they had half. You know, they were guessing about what might happen in the future. Right. And that's 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 the drawback. I think. Um, I mean, I'm I'm almost always coming down on the side of I would rather play tabletop because it's just so much more of a, a challenge to play against a real intelligence. Right. Um. But. But then it gets really, really hard to have that fog of war that that makes things like the beginning of some of these really big battles happen. Um, I mean, Shiloh, Manassas, Gettysburg, all have a lot of big question marks at the beginning if you don't have your history books handy. Right. That really, really, really drastically changed the way the, the battle plays out. Well, that's when you have... I mean, this is where Sid Meier's Gettysburg tend to, you know kind of square the circle or try to have it both ways where you know you, you they didn't have the entire battle of gettysburg they had little bits and pieces of it there were little small battles you would be fighting in the terrain very right. few of them would be very large engagements um so they you were actually fighting you know the battle of gettysburg but just on very different fronts up and down the line um, so you could say, yeah, this is just like Gettysburg. There was some variation, how well you did in one mission. I mean, the Confederates, there was a plausible Confederate route to victory based on how well Lee's already performed in previous scenarios. But there wasn't this sense that, well, I can just change everything, uh, follow a completely different strategy. And then it's not Gettysburg anymore. <laughs> right. And then you're playing something else. There's a battle that happens to be in the Gettysburg field. Well, this is this is something I kind of, you know, regret. I, I wish there were more. I wish there were more battle games. I I, I kind of feel like there there's so many games right. focusing on campaigns, and I, and I understand the reason for that. Like I always kind of, you know, I mean, it, it's easy to get frustrated with the limitations of a scenario. Like you know, well, if I were Lee, I sure as hell wouldn't fight Gettysburg past the first day. Well, yeah, maybe you wouldn't, but that's. You know, that's the battle we've got, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens over the next two days, so it's still good fodder for a scenario. But there, there's this desire to, to, to push it back, to widen the angle, you know, to, right. to, to get a wider perspective and say, well, you know, on second thought, you don't have to fight the Battle of Gettysburg. You can always redeploy, and you can start marching toward Harrisburg or something. Give you that little extra degree of freedom. Uh, but, I, but I feel, and this is, I think this is why we, often, we so often return to games like Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Not only a great game... But it's really sort of the, you know, one of those standout one-battle war games, um, which, you know, as a genre, just doesn't seem to have done that well, uh, you know, in the, la- in the last ten years. As, as Whereas all the, the rest of the war game market is just flourishing. 
Well, I would say I, I would say if you like playing, you know, like operational level or campaign level war games, you still got a lot of great choices. Yeah. I'm not sure you have as uh, have as rich a selection if you just want to, you know. There, there's there's been no successor to the uh, Talonsoft. What was it, the Battleground series? Yeah. Could anybody really touch that though? Come on, it was just so wonderful. <laughs> not in the AI sense, but it, it's that's that is. If I had to pick a series that's that's my favorite, uh, really, maybe even maybe even computer war game, um, it's it's because I always played it as uh, as human versus human. Um, it was in you know with a fog of war where we'd email back and forth and stuff like that, or hot seat it very very slowly. Um, it it the level of detail there, the the way they handled, I thought uh, the morale and um, and routing mechanics. Uh, I think. Battleground Gettysburg is one of the better simulations, at least, especially of that fight, um, that you can play as long as you've got a good, solid person to play against. And there are ways of gaming it, of course. I mean, like, uh, I once uh, played it such that I, as the South, took uh, Cemetery Ridge on the end of the second day, but I had one unit that was one volley away from routing. Uh, but I, you know, at that point, it's declared victory because I you know, took all of the map except for, you know, the next day's reinforcements. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's one of those games where it's got the depth um, that lets you play a very good game. And that's what I'm looking for, I think, when I'm looking for uh, a historical war game simulation. Now, have you played any of the HPS uh, war games? HPS is a... John Tiller's... Yeah, you know, that is a brand that I, you know, I'm not even sure, I'm not sure, I could not even swear to the fact that I've even played one HPS game. Okay, just curious. Because, uh, you know, they have quite a bit, a few, so they have, they have the battle games, and they're okay. But once again, you know, they've expanded them to these huge campaign-type maps that no one can finish, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a shame, um, but it's they're certain the battles are certain battle games are certainly worth a look. They have Corinth, they have Gettysburg, they have Chickamauga, they have Antietam, Ooh. they have all the big ones. Um, you know they're fifty dollar games, but you know if you're in, if you're into it um, and you want to have a good old fashioned hex game, you can play my email. Uh, check it out. I mean, we'll, we may have to check those out as these as these anniversaries <laughs> hit. But yeah, yeah. So I mean that's that's one thing I think that you know Sid Meier's Gettysburg really did brilliantly is. I think the best way to handle these battles is to separate them out into these little vignettes. Right. You know, and I've, I think Gettysburg sort of set the tone for this, and I think the uh, later though, Take Command the, series followed along. Though Meyer left that for Antietam. Antietam, he had the whole battle. I mean, he still had, you could play it separately, but then, but there was such demand for wanting to play the whole battle that, you know, okay, here's the whole battle, because people did not like having Gettysburg broken up, though I thought it made perfect design sense. This is time for the weekly Three Moves Ahead admonition, don't listen to your fans. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Comes up every week. But no, I mean, because there's always something, and I was totally that guy back when I was playing Gettysburg. I am sure that had I had more than a crappy dial-up connection with AOL, I might have taken the time to leave a nasty forum note saying, you know, why can't I play all of Gettysburg's, you know, Lee? But in retrospect, first of all, I mean, you know, the more you try to put the player in command of huge parts of a Civil War army, the more ridiculous the conceit becomes. You know, where, I mean, you know, there's there's that great scene, everyone remembers it in Gettysburg, it's Lee on the first day. He's talking to Harry Heath, trying to figure out what the hell is happening down the Cashtown Road, mm-hmm. right? And he he starts to hear basically a classic explanation of how how a forward commander completely loses control of the situation, and you know a meeting engagement just un, you know metastasizes into a huge battle. Um, and that's and that's kind of the experience of command in this era in a lot of cases. It's very hard to have good information. Uh, and so I think with a lot of these, a lot of these games, that you know, the further you move it up the chain of command, the more you're really stretching it. When you can move that camera from one end of the Union line all the way down to the other, see what's going on. You know, that's that, that that's that. It really feels artificial. It's also hard right. to control. But w- the genius of uh, the genius of Sid's game, and uh, what you know, the Take Command series largely, uh, you know, stayed stayed in this vein as well, was breaking it down into these bite-sized chunks where, you know, like, 
so many Civil War battles, they have these key locations that were almost like little battles in themselves. And that's yeah. what Sid Meier's Gettysburg excerpts from the battle. You know, we aren't going to talk about, we aren't going to talk about, we're not talking about the first day of Gettysburg even. We're talking about the fight, uh, you know, by the McPherson farm. We're talking about the fight at Barlow's Knoll. Well, I think I mean, it, it's interesting that, that Sid takes you away from being Lee uh, at Gettysburg because it, it, if you want to give the interesting choices, you're you're letting the player not play Gettysburg at that point <laughs> because I mean, that's one of the classic responses to uh, the Confederate strategy at Gettysburg is why didn't you pull back? Why didn't you stop fighting and go fight right. somewhere else? Right. Um, and that that's a different game all of a sudden. Uh, yeah, so but, what he but that's not an inter- interesting decision is to play or not to play. That's outside the game. Yeah, right. I mean, you'd have to make a much bigger game all of a sudden at that point to to allow for that interesting decision. Um, rather, what he does is he drops you down a, a command level or two and says, here's an interesting situation to be presented with. See what you can do with it within, you know, the what you, what you could have done as that general. Right. And there's also that fantastic... Um you know, the tiered victory conditions. A pretty standard wargaming war convention, but, mm-hmm. I mean, man, does Sid Meier's Gettysburg really twist the knife. Like, I mean, some of those, some of those like, decisive victories, they are really tough to get. Yeah. And so, I mean, when, you, when you're going for those, when you're going for those big wins, every scenario turns into the, uh, you know, Kobayashi Maru, right? Where every scenario is like, oh my god, why can't, you know, how the hell can I take that last hill? How can I get there? And you find yourself, you know, after you've done the battle, the by-the-book way, the historical way, whatever, you're, you're looking for that magic path that's somehow going to get you to blast through like two or three times as many enemy troops and steal victory. Um, and, you know, that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I mean, hell, here I am talking about it. I'm like, oh, I, you know, I should, I should go and see if I can, see if I can storm past Gettysburg on, on the first day of the <laughs> Confederates. I should, I should check that out, see if I've got enough game by now. Um... And I never do, but it's it's got these. The, the victory conditions are are really unforgiving. Like it's you know it's a very enjoyable game, and then if you want to get the perfect wins, it's it's brutal. Well, I think that's an interesting rhetorical move too. I mean, it's saying that the, this is going to be a close fight, and if you want it to be you know a really decisive victory, you're going to have to go almost unrealistically above and beyond. You have to have a Superman in your squad somewhere yeah. who's going to you know, take the bullets and keep walking and you know, walk all the way well, across the ridge. And, and in, in so many ways, I mean, that, that does sort of mirror the experience of Civil War commanders, especially in the early years, where there's this desperate search for the decisive battle, mm-hmm. for, for the major, for the smashing victory, the one that's going to tr- you know, turn the balance of the war. And they're incredibly elusive. I mean, Lee comes close at Second Manassas, but ultimately the Confederates can't, they, they basically can't advance fast enough to seal the deal and destroy the Union Army. So it's once only again... they had those shoes from Gettysburg. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, it, so yeah, to a degree, uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, like those victory conditions do kind of mirror this, you know, this desperate sense of like missed opportunities. Like maybe if we just fight one more battle... This time we can really shatter them, and you even see that I think historically is you know like why is Lee keep throwing his troops at this line? Like, <laughs> I mean, the biggest charge is a classic example. Is like, like I, okay, go ahead, try it, but uh, I don't think it's gonna work. Well, I mean, that's yeah. You know, I I always kind of feel I always kind of feel bad because it's it's easy to give it's easy to give Lee a bad rap for what happens at Gettysburg, and I think what what a lot of times looking at that battle, going back to the uh, you know idea of the strategic view versus the tactical view, like you know it, it's really hard to put to view it in context the way Lee would have. I mean, Lee knew things were bad along the Mississippi River. He knew Vicksburg, you know, wasn't wasn't long for this world. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I also it, it's really tough to imagine the effect of all those cumulative Southern victories, right? I mean, so many of them were improbable to begin with. Like, I mean, it's, it's difficult to address the idea that, well, we've always won before. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what I'm saying is um, it's, it is one of those spots where uh, you can feel that he really needs this win. You know? It's a very strategy him. game approach to things, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He realizes that, you know, Greenland is going to fall, so he has to roll his dice so he can capture yeah. Australia. On this, because he needs those extra cards. I mean, it's a badly feels he has to win, because um, he's that far 
uh, north as it is. I mean, you could you could even you know uh, criticize the north for not pursuing that army and crushing it uh, when it could have. It was an exhausted northern army, but the south was much worse off at that point. Um, right. You know, that that would have been the decisive end of the war right there uh, if the north had chased him. So, it's interesting here. Now we've been we've been talking about Gettys for Gettysburg for a long time, and I know yeah. before the show Troy, um, we kind of discussed the fact that for from a gaming point of view, it's almost like everything after July eighteen sixty three didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's feel like the the battle games. You have certainly a few, but it's there's no Petersburg. There's no Sherman's March. Um, you don't have really anything for, I mean, Grant wins the war in the East, and there aren't a lot of games about Grant winning the war in the East. And it, these are not foregone conclusions. These are hard fights, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the throughout the Union victory. I mean... Well, they're, they're, they're foregone conclusions, but they're hard fights. Well, right. I mean, I, I don't mean it's like... A, it's not like... It's not a Union victory lap, certainly. Right. No. Uh, I mean, there's still, like... There, there are still a number of hard battles... Um, you know, close-run things between Gettysburg and Appomattox, and, and yet you don't you don't see it. And, I, and I'm kind of I'm always curious, you know, when you've got plenty of source material, uh, when you've mm-hmm. got plenty of battles to choose from, plenty of campaigns, uh, why do you think it's been so overlooked? Why do I think it's been so overlooked? Yeah. Uh, because everybody knows Gettysburg, because it's <laughs> cool, uh, because you have. In many ways, I think that you have that there's the sense that the turning point has already happened in the war. Um, it's there aren't very many interesting operational things going on. These aren't great wars of it's the same reason. I mean, why would you do Petersburg? The same reason you don't do Fredericksburg. It's a boring battle. It's a siege that eventually breaks down into. You know, some combat. It's, you don't have a whole lot of really interesting stuff happening between large, well-led armies uh, that are equally well-led. Um, it's, I really can't think of a battle after that that usually, wow, this is, you know, 19th century Civil War battles at its best. That's um, true. It's, you know, you have, yes, you have some hard fights and you have some, a lot of casualties, and but you don't have, you know... You know the stumbling mistakes of Shiloh. You don't have the majesty of uh, Gettysburg. You don't have the holy shit that we just pulled that off of the first Manassas. I think that's one reason why, and it's the sense that the war is won. Um, it's now. I mean, people still do Battle of the Bulge. They still do Market Garden, even though those that war was over too, uh, for the most part. Um, but you know, people don't do the Battle of Berlin. Right, uh, um, but I, I, I think that's one reason why. But I think, it, and also, you know, Gettysburg's the star. But yeah, I think that I think there's something special, something special about the way I don't know the marketing of Market Garden and the Bulge, um, because you're, yep. you're right that it, it very much was uh, a foregone conclusion in the larger sense of uh, things at the time. Um, yep. But somehow we really, really cared about making sure we, you know, made that effort to get the war over by Christmas. Um, and that, that, that passion doesn't show through in the, the, the ending days uh, of the Civil War. Well, I mean, you're definitely right. Like, you know, it, it almost is a marketing thing, right? Like, I mean, Battle of the Bulge, well, it's got the catchy name, but the, the big thing it has is it's got these two great stories sort of intertwined. One is, you know, the holding action of the 101st, and mm-hmm. I think the second armored was also cut off in the pocket, holding right. San, San Viet. Uh, so, you, so you have these, these you know, American Thermopolis, uh basically taking place. And then, of course, you got, you know, Patton's Rescue March. Now, a lot of 101st guys would say, well, that was bullshit, but nonetheless, <laughs> you've, got, you've got Patton's Counterstroke. Um, so so you've got, you got a lot of points of interest in the Battle of the Bulge, and I suppose to an extent that there there aren't as many catchy stories. I mean, you know, the the, the bitter end of the Civil War is pretty damn depressing uh, for both mm-hmm. sides. Yeah. Uh, but but I th- also feel like part of it. Uh, I know we talked a bit on this show. I think it was during the uh, Forgotten Fronts episode. But you know how how games have never really handled 
really have trouble with like wars of attrition, wars of entrenchment. Um, you know, wars fought by engineers more than you know field generals. Right. And I think in a lot of places that's what the late stages of the Civil War turned into. Uh, turns into something, you know, a bit, you know, a bit of a premonition of World War One in many ways. Yeah. And uh, you know, games don't really touch World War One. And, and I feel they, they shy away from the late stage of the Civil War for a similar reason. Um, so, I mean, there, there's, there's a task. There's something for you to gamify, listeners. Um, find a way to gamify trench digging. If you ever use the word gamify again. <laughs> help me God. He's taking back the site. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, I'm thinking about um, various delaying action kind of uh, fights I've played. Um, I think part of it is that the delaying action really is just delaying the inevitable in the Civil War. I mean, there's, there's not a sense that um, if if they hold on long enough, then the North will give up. Yeah, maybe, maybe they'll go home. Yeah, I mean, but but you see that in, you know, in any invasion of Russia ever. There's, you know, the, the, the hope or the idea, and it usually pays off, that, uh, you know, we can delay, we can fight this as a war of well, defense it, and attrition it, 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 and engineers. It, well, it, it, it's not like Georgia was going to get a huge snowstorm that would freeze out Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Much pleasant, <laughs> more pleasant walking down there in the winter than it is up here. General Balmy Breeze. <laughs> <laughs> General Peach General Harvest. Peach Orchard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, and on that note, we're going to wind our discussion down. As always, I'd like to thank uh, Michael Hermes for producing this episode, and a big thanks to uh, Eric and Troy for uh, pitching on this on this one. We kind of threw it together at the last moment, but I think we've we've done a damn good job. Uh, as various 150th anniversaries come and go from the Civil War, um, you know, where, where there's good fodder for a 3MA, I hope to um, observe many of these anniversaries and look at some of the games that surround some of the momentous events of the Civil War. Uh, but, as always, we're a bit dependent on what kind of games are out there. Uh, but but you can expect a few more Civil War episodes uh, over the next year or so. Um, before we call it a night, I would like to ask our panelists, uh, what lesser-known, lesser-covered aspects of the Civil War would you like to see gamified? God, you're so fired. Yes! yes! So fired. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric. Okay, um, I'm from Illinois, so it'd be nice if there was something um, more in my area. Um, there's obviously not many fights within actual Illinois, um, but more stuff along the Mississippi would be nice. Um, I know Rob could particularly use a little bit more time looking at fighting in Missouri. Um, and beyond that, maybe more of the, uh, sneaking into forts in, like, sort of north and the south NES style would be fun, throwing knives at people. All right, Troy? Uh, b- b- blockade running. I see a naval sim, uh, where you are, you know, a Confederate smuggler trying to run a blockade. Uh, you can be a, you know, a black market businessman trying to build and manage great ships, get the supplies back, sell them for a profit, get better ships, and help the Confederates build a navy. So I think that'd be a design. I think blockade running, there's so much great adventure there. Um, I think it'd be a good action game, and I think it'd even be a good management game. Would there be two sides to that, or just uh, Southerners? That's an interesting question. Um, I think for the North, it'd be kind of like tower defense. I mean, it would be... Yeah, that could be the Facebook tie-in for the gamification. There you go. You try to block the. Yeah, sure. Make it a, 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 a tower defense game. On God. On on Facebook. <laughs> so we're all right. That You're in here is, first. That word is so banned. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. You know, for me, I mean, I I would love to see more games made about sort of the peripheral campaigns, the the ones that kind of fill the gaps between the major battles like I would love you know I would love to see a game made about you know all the action in the Cumberland Valley um, you know where you don't have a lot of the major commanders on the scene but you do have detachments going back and forth and fighting this you know smaller scale war very fiercely um, you know for, for control for control of the valley you know that's that's something I'd like to see more of because I think you know as, as Bruce has pointed out so many times it's hard to find 
uh, battles that really lend themselves to um, you know good translations uh, because so many of them are in some way kind of predetermined. You know, you can only change so much before you really begin to make it feel fake. But I, but I think if you get I think if you get away from you know the the major headlining engagements and you start to focus on you know the war at a smaller scale, um, you know you can maybe take a little more liberty, but also just find find new battlegrounds. All right, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, guys, and uh, hopefully we'll be. We'll be back together again soon to uh, talk about uh, perhaps the first Take Command game. Uh, But until then, good night. Good night, everyone. Good night.